This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Well, welcome to the uh, Joy Seminar. Uh, there, the original start time was 3.15, and I've been told that it actually was changed to 3. So uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, as a result of it uh, possibly changing to three. We also want to be able to have time for questions and answers and uh, for some dialogue as well. You having problems? Can you hear me? Can't hear me. All right. Testing. Testing one, two, three. Testing, testing one, two, three. How's that? Is that better? Okay. I think the ones in the center of the room may be the disadvantage. Is that the only speaker or is there another speaker? That's it. Okay. So if you are having lots of trouble hearing, you may want to get closer to the speaker, uh, meaning that speaker and not necessarily this speaker. All right. Before we uh, bow, before we begin, let's bow our heads and ask the Lord to guide us in this seminar. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to talk about our local churches and relationships and joy. And as we uh, center in on your word, we pray your blessing upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 2 is the basis of these seminars. And uh, verse 42 says, They continued steadfastly, in the apostles' what? Doctrine. Now, isn't doctrine something that is the opposite of joy? There are some people that believe that doctrines get in the way of joy. What is a doctrine? It's a teaching. And it says the apostles' doctrine. Is that a true statement? It was the apostles' doctrine, but where did the apostles get it from? Yes, the apostles were a messenger, and of course they had learned it from Jesus. And the best way to know someone, the best way to get to know someone, often is to listen to his or her teachings. And uh, then you can really get to know them. And uh, one of the best ways of getting to know Jesus is to get to know his teachings, and you'll get to know him. And so there's some people that try to pit doctrines against um, happiness or against unity, etc. But in reality, in order to have a true unity, it does have to be based upon Christ's teachings. Doctrine has to be included in that. And whenever you see doctrine being pitted against something good, particularly if it's Christ's doctrine, then those people don't understand doctrine or they don't understand what true happiness is and what true joy is. Because these, uh, uh, this is is something that uh, is part of this joy that's mentioned in Acts chapter 2. It says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and they also continued in what? In fellowship. Is fellowship a part of joy? It is. Relationships are a part of joy. It's kind of interesting. Before sin entered into this world, you know, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 tell us about how things were originally. And then Genesis chapter 3 tells us about how sin entered into the world. 
And by the way, there's a reverse of that in Revelation. The last two chapters of the Bible tell us about how things will be. That's the, where we're headed towards. That's the ideal. And the third to the last chapter tells us about how sin is gotten rid of. Uh, but before sin enters into the picture in Genesis chapter 3, there's a statement issued by God himself that says it is not good. Now, if you remember, every day of creation, he's saying it's good. It's good. And then it's very good. But then before sin enters into the world, he says the words, it's not good. What was the rest of that? For man to be alone. And, of course, uh, often uh, that's mentioned in regards to the marriage relationship, etc. But God was talking about things not necessarily related to marriage there. He was talking about social relationships. Uh, by the way, Christ himself also said that it's good for some people to never get married. Paul stated that it's good for men to be as I am. Uh, those are texts that are never quoted at a marriage ceremony. Uh, but uh, uh, those texts are not incongruent with what, what God was speaking about uh, in regards to it is not good. There are many people that are in a marriage relationship but are alone. And that's not good. And then there are many people that are, in a, that are single for life but yet have very healthy relationships and are very happy individuals. In fact, studies are, are very uh, clear, even from the secular psychological literature, if you want to be happily married, you first must be happily single. And so uh, marriage is not the ticket to happiness, but good relationships are part of happiness. Yes, you can uh, uh, come by. I'll, uh, there's some standing, and I think we have some seats. There are some seats right here in the center. Um, feel free to come. You can come across me here in the front and uh, come and find some seats. There are also some seats over on this side as well. So they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine. We talked about Christ's teachings lead to joy and fellowship, which also leads to joy. And in what else? The breaking of bread. Often, joy occurs around a eating table. Uh, and uh, uh, that's not something that we should neglect. And we have opportunities, particularly with the health message, to have some great eating arrangements. Not only can it be very tasty, but some uh, relationships can be established in that. And that's what the apostles were doing in that healthy church. But not only fellowship and the breaking of bread, but also what? Prayers. And prayer is an important part of a church that is full of joy. We'll talk more about uh, that later. Then uh, the next few verses that GYC, GYC didn't want to just center in on this verse. They wanted to center on all of them up to verse 47. But I'm now going to quote um, out of the Amplified Version. And uh, to try to fit this all in on one page, there's a few dot, dot, dots. You can, um, of course, get those, what are fill in the dots there uh, by looking at the Amplified Version later on. But verse 43 says, A sense of awe 
reverential fear came upon every soul. Now, where this is going to end up with is joy and gladness. But notice, these are prerequisites. These are prerequisites to getting to the joy and gladness. That sense of reverential awe, reverential fear. And all who believed, in the Amplified Version, by the way, is the version that tries to get to the original Greek word and give you all the nuances of it, or the main nuances, etc. So they often put things in parentheses. What does the word believe mean? In Greek, who adhered to and trusted in and relied on Jesus Christ, all who believed were united, and together they had everything in common. Now, does it say all were united in this church? It says all who believed were united. Now, uh, that's something uh, to uh, be aware of. Sometimes we think that in order for a church to be healthy, you have to have 100% unity among 100% members. And uh, we'll talk about that. That would be, of course, that would be an ideal situation. Uh, But there's a difference between the church militant and the church triumphant, as we'll talk about. Verse 46, day after day, they regularly assembled with united purpose, and in their homes they broke bread with gladness. Some translations interpret that joy, and that's where our title comes from today. With gladness and simplicity and generous hearts, constantly praising God and being in favor and goodwill with all the people, and the Lord kept adding to their number daily those who were being saved from spiritual death. Would you have liked to have been part of that church? That would have been an exciting church to be a part of. Daily increasing in numbers, those who were being saved from spiritual death. And one of the reasons why there was that daily addition is because of what was happening in verse 42 through 47. And so joy was a very important element of that apostolic church. Now, speaking of relationships, there's a study that takes a look at the happiness of Americans the last 30 years. Do you think it's gone up or it's gone down? You know, here we are living in an age where there's more fun things to do than ever before in human history. And so thus we should have more happiness than ever before in human history, right? We have more technology. I mean, didn't Steve Jobs um, create the greatest happiness the planet has ever known by all of his technology, etc.? You know, you, you might believe that if you listen to some of the media reports after his death, uh, etc., But, you know, these gadgets and the things that uh, make people transiently happy don't necessarily produce lasting happiness. In fact, once you get a 4G iPhone, soon you want to have a 4S iPhone. And then after you get the 4S iPhone, et cetera, uh, you know, it starts happening. And, of course, one of the ways that we become dissatisfied is through the Tenth Commandment breaking the Tenth Commandment, that is covetousness. You know, it's kind of interesting. The Lord ended his Ten Commandments letting us know that he wanted us all to be satisfied in that Tenth Commandment. 
And you know, billions of dollars are spent every year in this country to try to get you to covet. Why do they want you to covet? Because the people creating those ads to try to get you to covet are coveting themselves. And if they want to fulfill their covetousness, they have to get you to covet first. And so it's a vicious cycle that occurs. And that's why there's that commandment, thou shalt not covet. And of course, covetousness gets in the way of happiness. It's one of the reasons why America, which is the richest country on planet Earth, does not have the happiest people in it. Uh, in fact, it's the poorer countries of the world that have the happy, ha more happier people in it that have never even touched an iPhone before or uh, know what it is. But nonetheless, this study was done in just Americans. And we're in America today, so we'll talk about Americans. Our Americans are less happy today than they were 30 years ago, thanks to longer working hours, this study showed, and the deterioration in the quality of their what? Relationships with friends. Relationships, despite Facebook, have not been improving in this country. They've actually been going down. This is what the study showed. A person with no close friends or social relations would have to earn $320,000 more each year than someone who did to enjoy the same level of happiness. So, you need to think, thank your best friend for saving you $320,000. Because if you have a good, close friend that adds to your life in a very positive way, that's worth probably more than $320,000. This is just talking about the typical um, close friend or social relations in this world. While the average American paycheck has risen over the past 30 years, its happiness-boosting benefits were more than offset by a drop in the quality of relationships over the period. And that's why that term fellowship, relationships, continues to surface in the Acts chapter 2 uh, section, verses 42 and onward. So what we're going to be talking about today is changing dysfunctional churches. Many churches are dysfunctional because of the relationships they have. And these churches actually can be changed into healthy, functional churches. And I think uh, one of the uh, reasons uh, why we were uh, asked to do this seminar is because a, a byproduct, really a, not necessarily an intended product, of our depression recovery programs that have been run in local churches is not only do people get better from their depression, by and large, but what we've heard from conference presidents around America is that the relationships of local church members improve significantly that go through the program or lead out in the program. And so they've seen dysfunctional churches change into functional churches just by putting on a depression recovery program and having people lead out or attend in that. So there are principles there that can do it, but this isn't going to be about doing depression recovery per se. It, uh, we're going to, uh, there may be some overlap. But uh, I wanted to show you another scientific study. This was a smaller study. It shows taking part in group action to help bring about positive change can be good for your physical and mental health. The take-home message from this research 
therefore might be that people should get more involved in campaigns, struggles, and leading positive group programs, not only in the wider interest of the common good, but also for their own personal good. And so one of the reasons why it was such a happy church in apostolic times is they were in group activities trying to produce positive changes in their communities. The results emerged from in-depth interviews with nearly 40 people from a variety of backgrounds. Between them, they had more than 160 experiences of group action to bring about positive changes. Such was the strength of the feelings they experienced that the effects appeared to be sustained over a period of time. Empowering events were almost without exception described as joyous occasions, said Drury. Participants experienced a deep sense of happiness and even euphoria in being involved in teaming with others for positive change. Simply recounting the events in the interview brought a smile to the face of the interviewee. And so uh, we really, one of the tickets to happiness and joy in the local church is for the local church to team up and do something where there's a struggle in the community uh, to bring about some very positive change. And just that experience and going through that and recounting it can bring a smile in regards to the uh, joy that occurs. It's actually one of the reasons, the study goes into this, it's one of the reasons why people like to get involved in demonstrations. You know, have you wondered about, you know, all these people getting involved in the Occupy Wall Street movement, you know, in all of these different cities, or in, you know, Tea Party events, et cetera? Uh, this, um, uh, this aspect of trying to get involved in, in what they consider positive changes um, actually brings some joy and euphoria. Uh, to the individual. And I think uh, with the message that we have in our church, with being able to teach Christ teachings uh, that go against a lot of cultural aspect of things um, and doing it in an attractive way can be part of that bringing about joy. Well, in order for us to have functional churches, it requires change. Who said this? Except ye repent, ye shall all perish. Those were the words of Christ from Luke chapter 13. He said it in verse 3, and then he repeated himself in verse 5. Now, when Christ repeats himself, it's pretty important. And so, repenting is part of change. And, of course, with change, there's always a struggle, even for babies that go through changes. First, they have to learn what to do. Then they have to get ready to do it, and then they need to do it. And the same is true in regards to our churches. One of the questions that uh, I've heard people ask is, will we ever have a completely healthy and functional church? The Bible tells us, the wheat and tares grow together until the harvest. And so there's always going to be tares. By the way, that's parable tells us sometimes the tares are brought in by who? It says the enemy. You know, some of the baptisms that occur in your church may not be of the Lord. (laughs) Uh, They can actually be tares coming in to uh, bring about discord uh, in the church. 
And so the devil isn't necessarily concerned about the baptism count. What he's counting is how many tares he brought in in the process. Of course, uh, that doesn't mean we should be fearful of, of uh, going through evangelistic series and trying to have baptisms. We want to have baptisms that the Lord brings in. But the wheat and the tares grow together until the harvest, and the parable tells us what would happen if we try to root out those tares prematurely. What will happen in the process? So, yeah, that's right. Some innocent ones will be hurt. And so the wheat and the tares grow together until the harvest. Interestingly, the foolish and the wise virgins are together until the bridegroom comes. This is the church militant. This is on this side of the kingdom. The church militant will become the church triumphant. But in the process, the church militant sometimes points its military weapons at each other. And, you know, in the Gulf War, Persian Gulf War, we lost more soldiers from friendly fire than we did from the Iraqis. Uh, and, uh, and so in local churches, it's kind of interesting to me, in local churches, sometimes you'll see some of the greatest struggles, relationship struggles occurring that are just kind of phenomenal. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've, I'm part of secular organizations. You know, I'm, I've been a president of our medical staff there in the hospital, and there's always relationship issues with doctors, et cetera. Doctors are very independent thinkers, even politically and otherwise. We're not all part of the same political party. Uh, there's quite a variety of different opinions of physicians, et cetera, and being medical staff president, um, we talk about it's kind of like trying to herd cats around. Uh, but uh, in, uh, in reality, the struggles that occur on a large medical staff level are often minuscule in comparison to the relationship struggles that are occurring in a smaller local Adventist church. And you're wondering, why is this? What is going on here? And what I realize is if it wasn't an Adventist church, say if it was a Baptist church, the Baptists would never put up with those struggles. You get a little bit of relationship struggles, and they just leave. <laughs> you know, they're, they're getting out of there. They're not going to be part of it at all, and then, so they leave just very, very quickly. But because of the love of the truth keeping us together in the same church, but relationship struggles, you don't see that splitting off necessarily. You will see it in some. You'll still have um, the, the back door where people leave over relationship issues. Uh, but uh, the devil would like nothing better than for the church militant to be pointing its guns at each other uh, in this process and not really focused in on the community outside. And, of course, that detracts from their ability to really be in a focused setting to uh, benefit the community. The great outpouring of the Spirit of God which lightens the whole earth with his glory, will not come until we have an enlightened people that know by experience what it means to be laborers together with God. What she is talking about here is the prerequisite for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the latter rain. And we know that was a prerequisite. If you remember before in Acts 2 earlier, there was the early rain that was poured out. That was part of that whole joy aspect of things. 
That was part of the prerequisites. But there were prerequisites to having that early rain poured out. And she says, in order for this to occur, this outpouring of the Spirit of God, which lightens the whole earth, it won't come until we have an enlightened people that know by experience what it means to be laborers together with God. When we have entire, wholehearted consecration to the service of Christ, God will recognize the fact by an outpouring of his Spirit without measure. Quite a promise, isn't it? When we have entire, wholehearted consecration to the service of Christ. She goes on to say, but this will not be while the largest portion of the church are not laborers together with God. What's the largest portion of a group called? It's called the majority. And so what she is saying is, once we have the majority, what's the definition of majority? What percent? Yeah, it'd be 50.0000, as long as the zeros go, and then a one there. Majority is just over 50%. So once you get 51%, or a little over 50% of, the, in, uh, of that church group, entire wholehearted consecration to the service of Christ, the outpouring of his spirit will come without measure. And so this tells us as well that we're never going to have 100%. A lot of people think, you know, they, they center in on the ones who are clearly not doing the service of Christ and, uh, and being discouraged by those individuals. But in reality, what we need to be doing is getting ourselves into the service of Christ with that wholehearted consecration and service and then taking those who are on the fence and trying to bring them with us in that um, aspect of things. And of course, this involves what we've already talked about, that word change. Dr. Prochaska talks about stages of change. Pre-contemplation. That means you're not even considering a change, even though you need to make it. Then you get to the contemplation stage. What moves you from pre-contemplation to contemplation? What would make someone go from step one to step two in the process of change? Anyone? It's called knowledge. And the Bible says, my people are destroyed for what? Lack of knowledge. And so knowledge is very important. Some people say, we don't need more knowledge. It's not true. God's people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. We do need knowledge. In order to go through the stages of change, we need good, true knowledge. That's when we get to contemplation. And when we start applying that knowledge and preparing to apply that knowledge into our life, we're into the preparation stage. That's stage three. Then when we actually put it into action, we're in stage four. And then we not only have to put it into action, we now need to change permanently. That's called maintaining. That's stage five of the stages of change. And then after we maintain for a while, it's no longer a struggle. Dr. Prochaska calls it the termination stage. That doesn't mean that you are no longer changed or we go back it's saying that it's no longer a struggle. We're not having to work on that anymore. It's part of our everyday experience, our everyday life. Uh, we boil it down to the four stages of change. Unconsciously incompetent is the first stage. This is people that are living life in a bad way but don't recognize they are and look like they're actually enjoying it in the process. 
the problem with people that are unconsciously incompetent is that that joy that they have is very transient. It only lasts for so long. And eventually the effects of their poor lifestyle catch up with them and they start to have some significant misery occur in their life. Hopefully they'll go to stage two, consciously incompetent. That means they're aware now that they should change, but they haven't changed yet. Often going to a seminar like GYC will put you into stage two. But you have to go home to get into stage three. You need to prepare for getting into stage two here. So we might, might say Prochaska stage uh, steps two and three would be together at GYC. But step four is where you put it into action at home, and that's when you become consciously competent. And after you're consciously competent for a while, it then is unconsciously competent. And so those are the stages of change we need to go through in order to get to this joy in our church. Another quote from Ellen White, mechanics, lawyers, merchants, men of all trades and professions, educate themselves that they may become masters of their business. Should the followers of Christ be less intelligent and while professedly engaged in his service be ignorant of the ways and means to be employed? The enterprise of gaining everlasting life is above every earthly consideration. Would you agree with that? And so this is the very important seminar. In order to lead souls to Jesus, there must be a knowledge of what? Human nature and a study of the human mind. And so this is why I think it's very critical for us to learn how the mind works, how human nature works. Um, learning neurophysiology. Uh, I see Dr. Burnell Baldwin in our midst here today. Going to Dr. Baldwin's seminars, our neurophysiology, learning as much as we can about the brain, is an important part of us being able to lead souls to Jesus because then we can understand where there are and help them to go through that process of change. I mentioned uh, church programs that have in, uh, turned entire churches around from dysfunctional to functional, uh, such as depression recovery programs. We also have a new a program called Optimize Your Brain uh, because some people won't come out to a depression recovery program because they don't want the stigma of it. Uh, but uh, Optimize Your Brain on how to enhance your IQ and your EQ uh, can be very helpful in, uh, in local church programs. And then in regards to relationships, the fellowships, we need to understand how wounds, emotional and relational wounds, come about and how they are healed. I'm going to talk about just two emotional wounds. In our new um, depression recovery program series, we, we center in on six different emotional wounds. But this is just a uh, short seminar today, so I'm going to center in on two of them. Emotional wound number one is a self-inflicted wound. A lot of people blame others for their relationship problems. But in reality, the primary problem with relationship problems in most people is not the other person. It's themselves. And their relationship issues often are self-inflicted. You know, it's one of the reasons why that... Uh, does anyone know what the divorce rate is in this country on first-time marriages? It's close to 50%. 
If you've been married a second time, you're a little wiser, and so the rate goes down, correct? It goes up. 60% chance. Third time you've been married, what percent chance do you think it ends in divorce? 80%. And if you have had your fourth marriage, 90% chance that isn't going to work. And so what this is telling us is not that this person just picked bad people. It's that that person themselves have significant issues that prevent them from getting along with people that they actually have emotional love for. <laughs> and, uh, and that's a significant issue. They often are suffering from, the, although they blame others, their wounds are self-inflicted. Self-inflicted wounds occur by sin. I actually put these three things on. Uh, there's a, um, a, a seminar that uh, you'll hear in the future uh, by Dr. Phil Mills on the five ways of testing character. Did you know we are to be judges? The Bible says, what? You can't judge in your own church different issues that are going on, and you're going to be in charge of judging angels when you get to heaven. In other words, Paul is saying you need to be good judges down here, and you need to be good judges of even character. And there are five different ways of judging character. These are three of them that are mentioned right here. Dress is actually a way of judging character. It's a pretty accurate judge. Health, your, how, how much you are following the health message is a judge of character. Are you going to follow what the others are doing around you in regards to dress or health, or are you going to do a better way? Stepping out and following God's will in your life, which actually both of these things enhance happiness when they're done according to the Lord's will. The words that you speak are a test of your character. Uh, and they're directly related. They're showing that issues of the heart. There's a couple of others uh, there as well. And so often we get into self-inflicted wounds that demonstrate themselves in our character. And self-inflicted wounds often get infected and abscessed, even in the physical sense. You know, we've had individuals... Um, in fact, it's, it's a very common issue today. In every one of our treatment-resistant depression recovery programs, we have people that come with self-inflicted wounds. They'll actually have scars on them, multiple scars, where they've cut themselves, let the blood run, etc. Uh, some people would burn themselves. We had an individual that came to our program, um, actually a, a very high professional, uh, uh, in, um, in a brain science, um, a, a neurologist who was so emotionally distressed that um, she was actually burning herself um, and ended up having to have plastic surgery uh, in multiple uh, areas, etc. And when, you, when we have self-inflicted wounds, those self-inflicted wounds often get infected and abscessed. And if there's no remedy for them, they'll result in septic shock. And septic shock is an alternatingly painful with an alternatingly euphoric death. And so individuals with septic shock, um, it, it is, um, it, it's, not, it's certainly not the most painful way to die because of that euphoria that's often associated with it. Proverbs 28:13 says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, 
but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. And the secret for emotional wound number one is to get rid of the sin in your life. Take it to the great physician and let him cut it out. Unfortunately, however, many people with emotional wound number one are surrounded by false sympathizers. They'll blame others. If you remember typhoid Mary, typhoid Mary was infected. And people that are infected have a tendency to infect others. And when it was pointed out that she was a source of infection, she had a lot of false sympathizers come to her aid and go against those who were telling her that she was the problem. And as a result of her continuing to go around and cook from one institution to another, multiple people died in the process. Her false sympathizers were the ones that actually led to her serial killing. If it weren't for them, she would have actually submitted to the authorities, but they encouraged her to stand up for her rights, etc., and uh, it, um, it resulted in that. And so you'll see this. People with emotional wound number one, who is just, it's just plainly their sins that have caused their problem. They'll be surrounded by, by um, um, false sympathizers uh, who will lead them um, on to in regards to serial killing. The abscess and infected or self-inflicted wound remedy is simple. An abscess wound needs to be cut on. That's true with virtually every abscess in the body. If there is an, an abscess is a walled-off infection, it won't get cured with antibiotics. No antibiotic in the world will cure a typical abscess. It has to be cut on and drained and allowed that, um, uh, that abscess to be gotten rid of. In other words, we need another wound to heal the original wound. And, you know, some people, the, the interesting thing about many people who say they have been wounded emotionally uh, is that they need to recognize, if particularly if they're in this category, they need to recognize there are, is a, a group of people in this world that wound people all day long, cause a significant amount of pain in those people every day but yet they are not put in prison and they're not put in jail. What type, what type of group of people am I talking about? Surgeons, that's right. They go about with a knife and they actually physically wound people. And nobody puts them in prison. In fact, the family thanks them for wounding their loved one. Why is it? Because they need that wound in order to have healing. And so it is with those with emotional wound number one. They need another wound to heal the original wound. In other words, they need to be wounded by the great surgeon, the great physician, and have that abscessed and infected sin problem brought to the foot of the cross. Need to recognize your sin and repent in sackcloth and ashes. And the Lord can bring about healing in churches when that is occurring. And if you remember, that was one of the prerequisites, wasn't it, of the people in Acts? Don't you remember that they were actually confessing their sins one to another? They were actually taking those sins to the foot of the cross, and if they had wronged someone else, they were going to them. And of course, to, to participate in that process, it's a painful process at first. It requires the willingness to suffer more pain, 
just like a person going to surgery has to have that willingness to suffer more pain. The remedy also for this situation is mentioned in the Bible, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, notice all those ifs, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Quite a promise. And of course, turning from the wicked ways means repentance. And Desire of Ages says, no repentance is genuine that does not work reformation. And so there needs to be that willingness to reform. And then undergo the forgiveness conditions that the Bible mentions. We need to recognize only God can forgive. You know, some people will talk about forgiving themselves or whatever type of thing. Uh, The Bible uh, makes it plain that it's only God that can bring about that true forgiveness uh, that's there. Uh, We must call upon God for forgiveness for that to occur. We must ask forgiveness of those we have wronged as well in order for us to be forgiven by God. We must forgive those that do us wrong. We must humble ourselves and seek God. And there must be that reformation in our life. And the Lord is very willing and just anxiously awaiting us to come to him so that he can fully forgive us. The setup for change in Acts was also, part of it was that their false preconceived ideas needed to be eradicated. Do you remember what the false preconceived ideas were of many people in Israel back in those days? What was it? Christ was going to come as a conquering king and overthrow the Romans. And they were going to be the new world empire. And that was something that was taught. It was just taught as fact. Those false preconceived ideas were eradicated. How were they eradicated, by the way? Jesus' death was part of it, but it wasn't all of it. It was a Bible study given by Jesus himself out of the Old Testament to the two on the way to Emmaus that changed their false preconceived ideas. And then it says those two went around sharing it with all of the other believers. That Bible study has been repeated to this day. You'll see some of the same texts that Jesus used uh, to, uh, to show to get rid of that false teaching. And do you think false teachings can be gotten rid of today through Bible study? Absolutely. That's the way to do it, is through the Word of God. It can still happen today. So their false preconceived ideas had to be eradicated in order for this setup. By the way, anyone who kept their false preconceived ideas, not one of them received the Holy Spirit. Not one of them was part of that joyful experience of the church. So it's a, it's, a, it's a definite. We have to get rid of those. There must be heartfelt confession. And I remember this song that really is a part of it. This is a setup for the change in Acts. Anyone know this song? I want, dear Lord. You can sing it with me if you do. A heart that's pure and clean. A sunlit heart. 
without a cloud between. A heart like thine, a heart divine, a heart that's white as snow. I want, dear Lord, a heart like this bestow. This is what everyone in that functional church that became a functional church wanted. And uh, this was part of that uh, group change. How do we need to change? The question is asked. We need to be more thorough, we need to more thoroughly understand, think, live, and exemplify the two foundational principles of the government of God. What are those two foundational principles? We need to understand, think, live, and exemplify more truth. That's the Apostles' Doctrine. By the way, the Bible says God cannot lie. He actually could. He's a free moral agent, but he puts truth above himself. What that means is God is only going to be where truth is. That's a foundational principle of the government of God. And even in emotional intelligence, secular emotional intelligence books tell us that in order to have true unity, it has to be based on truth, not compromise. You know, in politics, you think you can only get unity when you compromise. But that's a very superficial unity that doesn't withstand stress. If you want to have true unity, it has to be based on bedrock truth, absolute truth. And that's a unity that is not easily disrupted at all. And so a foundational principle of the government of God is truth. And another one is we need to understand, think, live, and exemplify more love. That's the agape love, that merciful, self-sacrificing love. And then we need to understand how much we absolutely depend upon God for both of these things. We as human beings cannot love the way God loves in and of ourselves. We don't have the capacity. This, has, this is something that comes from the outside. It has to come from Christ. And when we have God's love, when we're understanding it, when we're thinking it, when we're living it, when we're exemplifying it, we have that catalyst, the most important catalyst change agent. By the way, Dr. Prochaska told us the number one way to get others to change? Knowledge is an important part of it. But knowledge in and of itself won't change anybody. They have to put it into action. But the greatest likelihood that they're going to put into action is if you have empathy for them. The teacher has empathy. That means love. And that's why the Bible talks about speaking the truth, how? In love. And uh, that's a critical aspect of improving our relationships. Well, now let's get to emotional wound number two. Emotional wound number two is actually an imaginary wound. We've had individuals, in the physical sense, come to my office and tell me that they have a wound and there's no wound there. It's imaginary. Uh, they'll have imaginary, even symptoms. Uh, we had a woman just uh, three weeks ago said, I've been to every doctor. I've been to ear, nose, and throat doctors, etc. I have this continual runny nose that never stops running. 
And I heard that you can see that, that you help those with the difficult to diagnose, and no one's been able to diagnose my runny nose problem. And I said, well, let me take a look. And I looked, and I didn't see any nose running, and I didn't see any moisture. And I was looking at other things, and she kept telling me about how bad it was and, and how it would even get crusty, etc. And her son, who was with her, um, I said, um, sir, have you ever seen it run? And he says, doctor, it doesn't. I don't want to say this in front of her, but there's no problems like that. She just thinks there is. An imaginary problem. And of course, imaginary problems are difficult to deal with. And uh, one of the imaginary problems that many people have in regards to relationships is they have a strong tendency to feel slighted at times. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you have felt slighted in the past? <laughs> well, some of you are actually going to raise your hands. We call this having a chip on your shoulder. It's actually caused by the cognitive distortion of magnification. And that's the magnification of self. The biggest problem of you feeling slighted is pride. And pride will get into the way of relationship problems and it will produce a lot of disjoy in the church. Magnification, when we take a look at it, Nebuchadnezzar said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built? What was his problem? And by the way, Nebuchadnezzar had been exposed to people who knew the truth and people who were highly intelligent. In Daniel chapter 1, he just elevates them to higher positions, but there's no comments made. Daniel chapter 2, he is so blown away by these men and their connection with God that he says, there is no other God like the God of Daniel. Sounds like a converted man, doesn't it? Was he converted at that point? No. Daniel chapter 3, he stands or, or sets up Nebuchadnezzar chapter 3. The, the word that's repeatedly mentioned is the setup. And by the way, there was part of that setup. Dress was a part of that setup. Music was a part of that setup. And, you know, uh, the devil, in a way, is trying to set up our churches as well uh, in, in maybe some similar manners. But the, the setup was put up there. And then the Lord turned that event into the largest, brightest screen TV that's ever occurred, so bright that thousands of people could watch it. It was live TV, and that was the fiery furnace. And after that, Nebuchadnezzar was so blown away by it all that he said, if anyone says anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're going to be cut in pieces and their houses laid in ruins. Converted man, doesn't it sound like? <laughs> by the way, whenever you see lack of religious liberty, like he just mentioned, it's a sign that the people behind it are unconverted. <laughs> That's a true sign of lack of conversion when you're going to try to kill people as a result of religion. And that's what he even put up there. 
He was, he, he was going to kill on the side of right religion uh, in a way, but it was still a sign of lack of conversion. His conversion story is told by himself in Daniel chapter 4. And, and in order for him to get converted, what had to be gotten rid of? The pride element. That was the thing that was standing in the way of Nebuchadnezzar having fully been converted. And by the way, God had to put him on a depression recovery program to get rid of the pride. If you remember, what type of diet was he put on? It was a raw plant food-based diet. And it was, his problem was so severe, it just required the raw greens. That's all, that's all he could have. And on top of that, he was put on an exercise program. In fact, he couldn't eat unless he exercised. And then on top of that, he had to get his circadian rhythms in cycle. The sleep-wake cycle had to be there. And then on top of that, the Bible makes it very clear that when you read it, Daniel chapter 4, there was another natural remedy that was used as part of Nebuchadnezzar's healing process. Do you remember what it was? Well, there was sunlight. There was water. What type of water? It, yeah, it was the, uh, the, the dew of heaven had to pass over him. That's called hydrotherapy. Uh, and so hydrotherapy was part of that program. Uh, and then after he put him through that entire spa program, then he had to give him cognitive behavioral therapy to help him see his pride. Did Nebuchadnezzar see it? Yes. He got rid of his pride, and he became a fully converted man. And it's very clear at the end of Daniel 4 he was fully converted because there was no coercive technique. He just told his testimony and appealed to them to do the same thing. The first sin problem occurred as a result of this magnification. I will exalt myself above the Most High. Who is this? That was Satan, Lucifer. Uh, there's a book um, that is uh, written by William Backus, What Your Counselor Never Told You. He's a cognitive behavioral therapist, psychologist, who's also a Lutheran minister. Uh, but the subtitle is The Seven Sins That Lead to Mental Illness. Did you know a lot of the problems that are caused in our churches today are due to the mentally ill church members? They may not have been diagnosed, but I can almost tell you if there's a significant, severe relationship problem in the church, either one or both parties has some significant mental health problems going on. And that's one of the reasons why, a, like a depression recovery program, will significantly improve that church and make it functional. In fact, what we've told our church leaders that are putting on that program is, bring the people that are intelligent but have significant emotional problems and help them to become facilitators and learn this program so they can teach it to others. It's transforming in a way. But this... Uh, this book talks about symptoms of pride, how to know whether you have it or not. Trying to be noticed. Craving attention. Have you ever wondered why the tattoo industry is exploding? Why the jewelry industry is exploding, etc.? Behind it is this trying to be noticed, craving attention, itching for compliments, needing to be important, detesting the idea of being submissive, loathing the idea of admitting to wrongdoing, strongly opinionated, being argumentative, demanding your way, 
wanting control over others, flaunting your individual rights, refusing advice, being critical yet resenting criticism, being oversensitive, and finally thinking you have excellences you simply don't have. If you have any of these, William Bacca says, watch out. Pride is there. And then wounded pride will follow. Whenever you have pride there, you're going to get into wounded pride. You're going to start feeling slighted. You're going to have that chip on your shoulder that someone knocks off, etc. And you're going to start blaming others for your own relationship issues that are occurring as a result of pride. The Bible tells us of a man who had a lot of good things going for him. Tall, stunningly handsome, wealthy, well-liked by the general public. Who was it? Saul. He started to have significant mental health problems. Research has documented that negative thoughts which cause emotional turmoil nearly always contain gross distortions. The thoughts on the surface appear valid, but you will learn that they are irrational or just playing wrong and that twisted thinking is a major cause of suffering. Three causes of his mental illness. When confronted with his own guilt, he minimized it and justified himself. And you know, often the Lord, if you want to learn a little bit about some of the problems you have in your life, that's why the Lord puts enemies into our pathway. Enemies will often tell you things that have elements of truth to them. They may not be completely true. And by the way, because they're not completely true, we, send to, we tend to focus in on the things that are not true that they're mentioning. I'll just tell you a personal experience. happened about a year and a half ago. Uh, and uh, with all of the other uh, things that I do, etc., uh, I was, um, uh, had to go to ICU that particular day, so I was about 30 minutes late for doing procedures in the GI lab. And when I came down there at 9.30, I heard the nurse who was in my room that day state to the patient, Dr. Nedley is always late. So, what would you have said? <laughs> yeah, the most natural thing is to think about the times when you haven't been late, because obviously she was wrong. Uh, it was always late. Uh, I mean, it wasn't always late, but yet she was mentioning that. But you know, when you hear something like that, instead of doing and, and focusing in on the things that she said wrong, instead... I looked at her with the patient there and I said, I know, Susan, that I am frequently late. And it is something that, I'm, that I have made a decision that I'm going to work on. Didn't justify myself, didn't tell about the ICU experience, etc. But uh, uh, because I'm, I'm so busy, et cetera, sometimes we need to plan to be there early in order to be there on time, et cetera. And so it needed to be something that I really did need to work on. And so that way I didn't, have a, I didn't create another enemy by pointing out her error, et cetera, in front of the nurse or in front of the patient. Uh, I, I addressed the issue, but at the same time recognized there was some validity uh, in what she had stated. 
And so uh, often we need to, when confronted with things that you are guilty, instead of minimizing it and justifying yourself, as did Saul when he was confronted with his appropriate guilt, we need to turn that uh, defeat into victory. And in other words, whenever we have made a mistake, we make a more severe mistake when we don't see that mistake and correct it. And so we need to correct our mistakes. Turning defeat into victory, Ellen White says, if you have made mistakes, you certainly gain a victory if you see these mistakes and regard them as beacons of warning. Thus you turn defeat into victory, disappointing the enemy and honoring your Redeemer. So when mistakes are made, put them up as beacons of warning. See what it is that led to that, and you'll be much less likely to make those mistakes in the future. Number two, dwelling on the unfairness of his life. People that are continuing... By the way, is life going to be fair to everybody? Is it going to be fair to anybody all the time? No, there's always going to be elements of unfairness. But often the people that are dwelling upon the unfairness of their life actually have been treated fairly, fairly. (laughs) In other words, those individuals are inflating things to a large degree. Watch out for that phrase, I can't stand it-itis, or I can't stand it. There's only one thing a human being cannot stand, and that's death. But when they tell themselves they can't stand it, they're inflating it, they're magnifying it, And that's when they lose their temper and get things out of control. And that's when all sorts of church problems start occurring and fights in the church. Ellen White says, when trials arise that seem unexplainable, we should not allow our peace to be spoiled. However unjustly we may be treated, let not passion arise. By indulging a spirit of retaliation, who do we injure? We injure ourselves. We destroy our own confidence in God and grieve the Holy Spirit. The third cause of Saul's mental health issues was that high self-esteem that was wounded by the people's and especially the women's obvious preference for another leader. There it was, 20,000 or so women, young women, ages 15 to about 35, whereas most of them were in that group, singing in beautiful harmony, as the soldiers were coming back in from a great victory, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, it's true that those women probably could have used some different words to make their point. But nonetheless when Saul heard it, and it was repeated, you know, the the song just kept repeating itself when all these people came in. His pride was wounded. And he ended up going off the deep end and even plotting and trying to get rid of David. This would have never happened had he not developed that sense of self-pride. Christ, in contrast, says, Blessed are the what? Blessed are the meek. The difficulties we have to encounter may may be very much lessened by that meekness which hides itself in Christ. We're going to have difficulties in our church, but we'll have a lot less of it if we show that meek spirit. If we possess the humility of our master, we shall rise above the slights, the rebuffs, the annoyances to which we are daily exposed, and they will cease to cast a gloom over the spirit. 
The highest evidence of nobility in a Christian is what? Self-control. He who under abuse or cruelty fails to maintain a calm and trustful spirit robs God of his right to reveal in him his own perfection of character. Lowliness of heart is the strength that gives victory to the followers of Christ. It is the token of their connection with the courts above. Blessed are the meek. She goes on in another place to say, Meekness is not a species of cowardice. It is the spirit which Christ manifested when suffering injury, when enduring insult and and abuse. To be meek is not to surrender our rights, but is the preservation of self-control under provocation to give way to anger or to the spirit of retaliation. Meekness will not allow passion to take the lines. When Christ was accused by the priests and Pharisees, he preserved his self-control, but he took his position decidedly that their charges were untrue. In other words, he didn't back down on that. Some people, you know, in a court of law or whatever, even though they might be right in it, because of all of the external pressures, may not actually stand up for the right. They'll cave. That's called cowardice. That is not meekness. It appears that they're meek, but it's not. He said to them, Christ said to them, Which of you convinces me of sin? If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? He knew that his position was right. When Paul and Silas were beaten and thrust into prison without trial or sentence, they did not surrender their right to be treated as honest citizens. If you remember after that earthquake occurred and they said, All right, all the prisoners go free. They said, We're not getting out of here. The people who put us in here need to come down here themselves and let us go free. In other words, they were standing up for their rights, even though they were meek. Desire of Ages says Christ was never elated by applause. Why was he never elated by applause? Because he didn't have that pride, that self-pride. He had the spirit of meekness, nor dejected by censure or disappointment. Why was he never dejected by censure or disappointment? It's actually the same reason that humility, not developing the pride, and, and, and indeed um, uh, having that spirit of his father. Amid the greatest opposition and the most cruel treatment, he was still of good courage. And so that meekness will do much in your local church to enhance relationships. It will not allow that temper to take hold. Thomas Jefferson said, nothing gives one person so much advantage over another as to remain cool and unruffled under all circumstances. And I think that's one of the reasons why God has allowed some of the greatest relationship conflicts to occur in a local church setting. He's trying to develop the character of his people. And he's giving you practice tests. He's giving you the ability Uh, And when you have failed in that way, then you need to see the ways you failed. You need to get rid of that pride. You need to have that spirit of meekness that's there. Even though you're not giving up truth, this is not sacrificing truth. What is the difference between the child of the slave woman and the child of the free woman? You know, uh, I've appreciated the lesson study this last quarter on the book of Galatians. How many of you have had a chance to study out of Galatians this quarter? Uh, We see probably, what, half of the hands um, go up. 
Um, hopefully, um, uh, you had a chance to get into that. You know, one of the things, uh, it's kind of interesting, uh, I have to teach a Sabbath school class often. And uh, when I was uh, starting the, to teach out of Galatians, I was remembering a book that I saw a long time ago by E.J. Wagner called The Gospel in Galatians. And uh, it was a Friday evening, and I was uh, preparing for my uh, Sabbath morning Sabbath school, and I said to Erica, I said, Erica, somewhere in this house we have a little book called The Gospel in Galatians. Do you have any idea where that's at? And, of course, we have a huge library and multiple rooms, and there's books everywhere, et cetera, and it had been many years. She says, no, I don't know, but let me look. And she went out there uh, to the library and put her um, light on, and she said she doesn't know why, but she reached up at the very top shelf where she couldn't even see a book, and just reached up there and looked at the book that came down, and it was The Gospel in Galatians by E.J. <laughs> Wagner. Do you think the Lord wanted me to read that book that night? <laughs> so she came back immediately with the book. I said, Erica, how in the world did you find that? And she told me her story. But E.J. Wagner had a lot of good things to say about the law in Galatians. Really, it was about the, the law in Galatians that he was writing. It was actually a letter that he had written to the conference president. He was the head of the Pacific Press, and Butler was the head of the General Conference. Butler was writing in the Review about the law in Galatians, and Wagner was writing in the Pacific Press about the law in Galatians, and they were opposed in their doctrine. They were not on the same page. And it turned out the General Conference president was wrong, and Wagner was right to a large extent, and Wagner wrote him a 50-some page letter, a very merciful letter, explaining the position, etc. Uh, it's a very important book to understand if you're a Seventh-day Adventist. Very important book. But what I realized in studying Galatians is that Wagner didn't have it completely understood. Jones, I don't think, had it completely understood. There's still depths to get out of Galatians. And what Galatians talks about is... In Galatians chapter 4, it talks about Abraham being the head there of the church. He's kind of a symbol of Christ. And then a slave woman and a bondwoman. He talks about carrying out the flesh or walking in the spirit. Are you going to walk in the flesh or walk in the spirit? Crucial element to joy and happiness. Those that walk in the spirit are going to have that joy and happiness in their life, even though they're maybe in the midst of, of controversy, etc., they'll still have that spirit of joy. And he goes through. Hagar, of course, was the bondwoman, and Ishmael resulted. The works of the flesh. Do the works of the flesh produce? Yeah, they produce. And they produced Ishmael. Loved by Abraham. Loved dearly. By Abraham. And then the work of the Spirit, because the Spirit intervened. And by the way, the work of the Spirit and the work of the flesh, they often look pretty much the same. They very much resemble each other. In fact, you can keep certain commandments. You know, if you're a legalist, you can keep commandments superficially and selectively. 
By the way, you won't be able to keep all the commandments. Some people say, well, you can't go to heaven by keeping the commandments because the Pharisees are an example of that. They kept the commandments and they aren't going to be there. Did the Pharisees really keep the, all the commandments? What was Christ writing in the sand? He was writing their sins. They were only selectively and superficially. When other people were watching, they were keeping them. But they weren't keeping them at all, per se. And so this is kind of the wheat and the tares that we talked about, the foolish virgins and the wise virgins. They can be in the same church. They can be doing the same acts. They can be doing everything pretty much the same. How can you tell between those that are walking in the spirit and walking in the flesh? Galatians 4.29 tells us how to tell the difference. Let me see if I can turn to it here in my iPhone so I don't misquote it. I don't have it up here. Galatians 4.29. Anyone have it? Can you read it for us? All right, so that who that was born after the flesh did what to those, that that was born after the spirit? Persecuted. How did Ishmael persecute Isaac? Do you remember? He made him a subject of ridicule. And I certainly don't want to be found ridiculing people in the church or talking against them particularly those that appear to be doing what's right. And you'll see this in churches. Those that are following through the Spirit, following the dictates of their conscience, who are following the health message, who are out there witnessing in the world, sometimes will be made the spirit of ridicule. It's a clear sign of those that are in the flesh versus walking in the Spirit. And you're going to have that in every church those that are walking in the flesh, and those that are walking in the spirit. And so we need to be very careful about what we say about others. It's a lot easier to talk to someone else about someone else's problem. But if we have an issue with somebody where we think we've been hurt by, why not go to them and not spread it around to anybody else? Follow the words of Christ. And in that meekness and love, and humility. There is a difference, and there is a way to get this joy and happiness in the church. We need to replace our unhealthy relationships with healthy relationships. Relationships that will draw you closer to Jesus. In the church, just about every local church, you'll find people that will help to draw you closer to Jesus. Get close to those individuals. Relationships that will strengthen you to resist temptation and evil. That's one of the reasons for relationships. Relationships characterized by openness with a willingness to rebuke. Proverbs says, rebuke a wise man and he will what? He will be wiser. And another place he says, rebuke a wise man and he will love thee. Rebuke a foolish man, he says, and he will what? He will hate thee. And so, do you have a friend? Are you just surrounded by friends that make you feel good about yourself? Or do you have friends who there's openness enough that when you're starting to go in a way that you don't even really see like, feel that you're deviating, that friend is open enough to say, you know what, I'm worried about you. 
Those are the type of friends that we need to try to have. Relationships that are often differing in age are helpful as well. You know, in GYC, we have people that are just all pretty much, you know, academy, college age, the youth of the church. And it's nice to have youth meetings that are just for the youth of the church, like this is. But there's also a great advantage to having friends that are vastly different in age than you are. They have more experience. They have some things that we can draw from, and also people that are younger than us that we can mentor. That's how we help solidify our own uh, character attributes that Christ wants us to have. Relationships that will form a soul-winning team that will multiply your united efforts. Such relationships will grow into a strong bond that will resemble David and Jonathan, closer than family with true brotherly love. And within every church, just about, there are people there that if we follow the patterns that I've just talked about today, you can develop relationships like David and Jonathan had, far closer than blood family. And those relationships can bring about a lot of joy and happiness throughout the rest of your life. Well, we need to put these principles into action. And when we get, keep them into action, we'll become unconsciously competent. And that's when Psalms 40, verse 8 comes about. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The Lord wants us to have those lasting, pure pleasures that come as a result of following his principles in relationships. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And then the psalmist says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. When that unity is based on truth, on common goals and actions, when we're teaming up with them, when we have that brotherly spirit like David and Jonathan, that doesn't mean we're going to be identical but will be complementary, same philosophy, similar goals. There are barriers to achieving stage four. Romans 13, 14 says, Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. The story is told of Johnny. He went out the door after his mother told him, I don't want you to go swimming after school today, Johnny. I want you to come straight home after school. Johnny was used to going swimming after school. Johnny comes home late, and his hair is all wet. And his mom says, Johnny, I told you not to go swimming after school today. What happened? Mom, I was tempted. Johnny, I told you not to go swimming after school before you left this morning, and after I told you that, I noticed you took your bathing suit out the door with you. <laughs> Mom, that's because I thought I might be tempted. <laughs> and often, we, put, we make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof, we put things across our pathway that are relationship substitutes. Those relationship substitutes might be Facebook. It might be, you know, the Internet. It might be some sort of addiction thing that makes you feel better transiently, etc. 
But the Lord is saying, that's a barrier. You won't achieve stage four with those things going on. He says, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. If he tells us not to do it, then don't make provision for it. He that endureth to the end, in other words, those that stay in stage three long enough, they will eventually get to stage four where that joy is full and everlasting, even in this world. He that endureth to the end shall be saved. Change. I invite each one of you in this room. Each one of you is important to the Lord. Each one of you can be a change agent. And each one of you can change. I invite you to accept the call and change, both now and forever. We'll, uh, let's see, it is uh, 4.25, and the seminar, I think, was supposed to go till 5. And so we'll have opportunities for questions and answers. Uh, but uh, before we um, go into them, let's just uh, bow our heads and uh, ask the Lord to enter. Father in heaven, we thank you for revealing the prerequisites for that pure joy and happiness that can occur among friends in the local church and can occur even among those that are now enemies in the local church. We pray, Lord, for that spirit of acts. We pray that we might be willing to undergo the prerequisites, the time that it takes, the confession, the getting rid of the distorted thoughts, And may we, as a result, enter into full and lasting, healthy relationships in our church that not only bring joy and happiness to our own heart, but also make us far more effective in bringing souls in from outside. We know, Lord, that joy can be attractive. And we know that pure joy that comes from the outpouring of your spirit will have a mighty attraction to it. But we know, Lord, that that does not occur in a vacuum. And so we pray, Lord, the prayer of David, that you might search us, try us, see if there be any distorted way in us, and point it out to us so that we may take our sins to the foot of the cross, that we may replace the spirit of self-pride with the spirit of meekness and the opportunity to take hold of your love in our life. We thank you for hearing and answering this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you do have questions, I invite you to go up to the microphone because I think this seminar is being taped. So um, uh, there are those that would like to listen to this tape and learn from your questions. Yes. Do you have a book where I'd be able to find this information? Uh, The book that would have probably the most of this information would be the book called The Lost Art of Thinking. How to Improve Your Emotional Intelligence. That'll have um, a, good, a good share of what I've uh, represented. Anyone else? It is in the ABCs, yeah. And I would imagine it would be downstairs. It's also in one of the booths. Yes. How would sugar affect your ability to have self-control? How would sugar affect your ability to have self-control? Well, it does affect it. That's why Nebuchadnezzar was put on a no-sugar diet uh, as well in order to have that, uh, that prerequisite uh, for change. Um, yeah, particularly high sugar um, actually 
as a result, when we eat a sugary substance, the pancreas cranks out insulin thinking we've eaten a large amount of fruits, grains, nuts, and vegetables, and so you get into that hypoglycemia sometimes within 20 minutes afterwards. Subtle hypoglycemia um, will actually suppress the frontal lobe of the brain. Wow. Doesn't affect the memory. You can still memorize and regurgitate memory, but if you have to think about problems, you're not going to do as well, and that's why people with on a high sugar diet actually make much poorer grades, particularly in frontal lobe subjects. So we know that from the scientific standpoint. Of course, the frontal lobe is the seat of spirituality, morality, and the will as well. And um, you know that's one of the things in the church. You know, speaking about Seventh Day Adventist churches, uh, there are many, uh, there are more people that are vegetarians than there are people who limit their sugar intake. Uh, and uh, Ellen White said something profound that's actually been uh, now being demonstrated in the scientific literature. She said, sugar, when largely used, is more injurious than meat. And so um, something to uh, take note of. It does have a role to play. What's that? Which new study? All club soda. Oh, uh, club soda and the violins. You probably sh I probably saw it recently. I might have mentioned it to you. Go ahead and come come up to the microphone, Erica. Okay, she thought I might remember it uh, more fully. There was a study in regards to um, uh, sugar and uh, violin playing, I think, as well. Oh yes, now I got you. <laughs> I was trying to think sugar and violins. Well, uh, as I mentioned, in a, if you read the dedication in the book, Depression the Way Out, I talk about how Eric and I, when we first met, didn't speak the same language at all. And we had to go through someone who knew Spanish um, to uh, uh, communicate, and she didn't know Spanish either. She knew Romanian. But I mentioned after that that our communication has steadily improved ever since. And, but there's still room for improvement. Uh, and... Uh, the uh, study on, yes, high sugar intake has actually been linked to an increased risk of violence. And a well-designed study recently in the medical literature um, showing that association. You're, much more, you're more likely to lose your temper uh, as a result of a uh, high sugar diet. And of course, we're talking about the lack of losing temper here in regards to relationships and meekness, et cetera. Yes, anyone else? Uh, you might come up to the microphone. Uh, and you can line up there, yes. Uh. Am I allowed to have two questions? Sure, go ahead. Okay, from that previous question, I just had a question that came up to mind um, with the sugar. Does that include um, like the Latruvia and Stevia type plants? Uh, no, Virginia? no, not necessarily. Um, there is um, uh, some... Uh, we don't necessarily recognize or recommend the sugar substitutes because what studies show in regards to sugar substitutes is they keep your appetite for the real thing there and so you continue to try to seek it out. If you actually get on a no sugar diet and you're used to a high sugar diet, it takes you about four months for the taste buds to adjust, but then you start enjoying apples like you used to enjoy sweet apple pie 
and you start enjoying natural foods uh, in a state that are very highly enjoyable because you're able to detect that natural sweetness that is there. And naturally sweet foods actually are healthier for you than the same type of foods that are not naturally sweet. You know, the more organically grown and the more and they're grown better, et cetera, they are sweeter uh, as a result. They're better tasting. That's why foods out of the garden uh, tend to taste better as well. And so uh, we don't recommend the sugar substitutes for that reason, but no, stevia has not been shown to increase violence or to have issues with that um, per se, um, although some of the sugar substitutes have shown, for instance, there was a study in Philadelphia that showed if you eat four um, sugar-free pops per day versus if you eat four sugary pops per day, you gain more weight on not eating, I mean, in eating the one-cal sodas wow. uh, than if you eat the sugary sodas. Why is that the case? Not because they have more calories. They actually more. are true. They have one calories. But you are uh, doing it, uh, you're actually eating more because your appetite is increased um, throughout the day. So uh, that's something to keep in mind as well. Second question. Um, I heard you talk about the, the depression program that has been being done at churches. And I heard you talk about people being trained to be able to do that. Well, all of us are from everywhere in the United States and maybe the world. How can we be able to do that in our church? Okay. Uh, there is an online training that you can get on our website um, that's a, a certified fac uh, facilitator and director training for it. There's also a training that will be occurring at the NAD Health Summit in Orlando end of January, and there will be one in Dallas at the end of February at an Emotional Intelligence Summit. So I would encourage the, the live trainings uh, if you can, but if you can't, the internet-based trainings are, um, are still pretty good. And so uh, there are ways that you can accomplish that. The website would be drnedley.com. Yeah, drnedley.com. Dr. Nedley, I have two questions. One of them is nat natural flavors and, and that ingredient listed in a health food, like I, I'll, the last one I saw was in a smoothie. You know, one of the one of the organic or one of the real good smoothies listed natural flavors. Can you comment on if that's you know something not good? Well, it could be good and it may not be good. You know, one of the things that uh, I like to um, mention to people is um, tobacco is a natural plant, um, and you know some some you know people have this misconception of something is natural, it is thus healthy for you. And, of course, we know tobacco is unhealthy, uh, whether it's chewed or whether it's smoked or whatever. Uh, and, uh, and so not everything that's natural is necessarily healthy. And so if they have on the ingredient natural flavors, it's not really telling you uh, what's there, and it depends on what they actually put into it. So sometimes you have to contact the manufacturer if you're wondering. Okay. And another, another question I have is um, MS... There's a lady that did a, a health thing in our church, just a short, it was a church member about MSG, and there's some people that are really, like carrageenan, and there's a bunch of things that have MSG. Is that, are there, are there legitimate concerns with MSG? Um, and is it hidden in different yeah. things? Well, that's a good question. MSG is monosodium glutamate. And uh, there's a book written by Dr. Russell Blaylock um, that um, uh, he's a neurosurgeon. Uh, it's called um, excitotoxins that talks about aspartame, which is one of the um, sugar substitutes, and talks about monosodium glutamate actually um, ac destroying 
brain cells. And um, uh, we don't recommend aspartame necessarily or monosodium glutamate. We can live without those things, and so I think it would be better without it. But uh, I think he has majored in minors to a large extent, and he even admits it at the end of his book. He states that this is all based on if you inject monosodium glutamate into a rat's brain or aspartame into a rat's brain, you will cause that rat to seize and it will have permanent brain damage. What he doesn't tell you in the back of his book is if you inject sterile water into a rat's brain, it will undergo a seizure and have permanent brain damage. Glutamate, 30% uh, of the amino acids in wheat is glutamine. Glutamine gets transferred to glutamate in the body. If glutamate were that harmful, then wheat should be eliminated from the diet. And we're told about the benefits of healthy bread, et cetera, and we know wheat, uh, by and large, unless you're gluten sensitive, um, is, uh, is very healthy and it's been continued to show in, in studies today. And so uh, I think uh, we need to be uh, careful. The things that we want to major in in regards to health reform, Ellen White pretty much has in the books, Councils on Diets and Foods and Ministry of Healing and things of that nature. Uh, but when we get off on some of these other uh, items, although they may have some level of importance, um, they're, um, uh, uh, they're, uh, they're really, uh, in my opinion, both the aspartame and the uh, monosodium glutamate issue is majoring in minors uh, and is not where our major health emphasis should be on. Dr. Nedley, what is your booth number? <laughs> Good question. I don't know what my booth number is. Um, but you have one here. Yeah, we do have a booth here. What aisle are you on? Um, yeah, it's the second aisle? Okay, I've been told it's the second aisle. I've been to it one time and uh, and that was for about three minutes and I was in, the, in search of something. <laughs> uh, so I apologize, I'm not oriented yet. And if I may say, um, the natural flavorings, the food industry often uses that as a disguise word for dairy as they often use the word caramel color as another disguise word for dairy. The evidence for this comes from a book called Whitewashed by Joseph Keon, Ph.D. in Nutrition. Okay, very good. And of course, you know, dairy would quote, qualify as a natural flavor. So um, something to, uh, to be aware of. We have another question coming. Just a comment on the female alanine. I sat there and thought, should I be quiet or should I say something? My husband's a pathologist, and he, um, did, a he did a rotation with a neuropathologist at NI National Institute of Health. And this man feels so strongly against phenylalanine that it's one of the major causes for brain tumors in a younger age group and aspartame. And um, he's done some research, but the interesting thing is if you look at how it's worked its way into all these gums, even what used to be regular gums, like Wrigley's, never, it doesn't claim to be sugar-free, but they add that to it. So you're right, you don't want to major in a minor, but it's often the little sins that become big sins. All right, thank you very much. Uh, well, as of like a year ago, I started hearing about, you know, how dairy is bad for you and stuff. How bad is dairy for you? What does dairy do to you? All right. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, 
uh, dairy has some good things in it. And of course, the dairy industry talks about that. Uh -huh. um, what are some of the good things in dairy? Anyone? Strong bones. <laughs> yeah, calcium. It does have uh, quite a bit of calcium in it. What else does it have? It has some protein in it. It has what else? B12. Um, not so much B12 as you might think. In fact, the, uh, the study on Seventh-day Adventist ministers that are lacto-ovo-vegetarian and total vegetarian in Australia showed that um, the Australian lacto-ovo-vegetarians had very high rates of B12 deficiency. You know, we need to recognize B12 is not made by animals and it's not made by plants. It's made by bacteria. That's right. And so um, if they didn't pasteurize the milk, and if you didn't refrigerate it, and you ate it totally spoiled, you'd probably have some more B12 in it. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, in reality, B12 is often an indicator of things that are, have a lot more bacteria in it. If you don't brush your teeth, the bacteria in your mouth might start making some B12 after several days. Um, and uh, you can, uh, the bacteria in your colon make plenty of B12. Um, it's just not absorbed in the colon. It's absorbed in the distal ileum. So if you have an incompetent ileocecal valve, you'll be able to never, you'll never need B12 um, in your diet because the bacteria in your colon are making plenty, uh, et cetera. And so um, uh, B12 is overblown as far as a reason to consume dairy, particularly for a plant-based vegetarian. It's not a reliable source of B12. Uh, another uh, thing that's talked about by the dairy industry that's positive about it is vitamin D. Does dairy have vitamin D in it naturally? No, it's added, and the added amounts are very small. We used to think they were larger than what they are. Uh, you know, it's you know, maybe 100 units, uh, et cetera, uh, if you're consuming quite a bit of dairy. But uh, we now know that that's, that's a minuscule amount. We really should be getting probably close to 1,000 um, units a day, and you wouldn't want to eat enough dairy to get enough vitamin D that way because of all the problems of dairy excess uh, that can be caused. Now, what are the problems? We mentioned some of the benefits of dairy. It also has some magnesium. It has some other uh, nutrients in it, uh, et cetera. Zinc, it's not a good source of iron, by the way. Um, you're much more likely to be iron deficient if you're a lacto-ovo vegetarian than you are a plant-based vegetarian. Uh, but um, what are some of the problems with dairy? Anyone? All right, uh, someone mentions it leaches calcium from the bones. Um, it actually, there are several things. It's not really the dairy per se, but some things that might be in the dairy that do that. Um, just a little quick thing in regards to leaching calcium from the bones. Excess protein will do it. Excess sugar will do it. Excess sodium will do it. And, of course, dairy tends to be a moderately high in sodium. It tends to be a little uh, higher in protein, et cetera. Uh, it can be um, high in lactose, a, a sugar, et cetera. And so we need to be aware that um, calcium stones or osteoporosis is not just dairy. Um, it's, um, it can actually be many other things that are high in sodium, higher, high in protein, higher in sugar, uh, et cetera. Uh, but uh, actually talking about problem nutrients in dairy, what would be some problem nutrients that are there? Well, uh, higher in protein is not, um, is not the, the main issue per se. Of course, there's casein, 
Dr. T. Colin Campbell talks about casein uh, suppressing your immune system so that it increases the risk of cancer. Uh, and there's some protein-related things. But there are some things that are much more standardly known to be wrong with dairy than the protein. Excess fat, particularly what type of fat? Saturated fat. And saturated fat raises your cholesterol level significantly. It increases the risk of stroke, heart disease, atherosclerosis. And it also has cholesterol in it as well. And all of the reversal diets that reverse coronary disease, they all have one thing that is standard among them, and that is they're either extremely low or have zero cholesterol in them. And cholesterol in the diet tends to be harmful than what your liver produces because it tends to be oxidized. And oxidized cholesterol is more damaging. And, of course, the way most people consume dairy, it has been through the, an oxidization process, et cetera. So it's, a, it's one of those mixed foods. And what I like to mention about it is, you know, the, the world is enthralled with things that have benefits and risks. What are some other things that the world's enthralled with that has some benefits and risks? Alcohol, that's right. What are one of the benefits of alcohol? Increases HDL cholesterol, the good cholesterol. And it's true that if you drink enough alcohol to get cirrhosis of the liver, you only have a 20% chance of dying of heart disease compared to someone in the general population. <laughs> um, and uh, so, you know, quotes, alcohol has its, its benefit. We know it inc dramatically increases the risk of a number of cancers. It's associated with all sorts of other things as well. But yet the world out there still likes to promote the benefits of alcohol. It also likes to promote the benefits of green tea, you know, where you have some bioflavonoids, but you also have caffeine, et cetera. And, of course, caffeine is not an antioxidant. Uh, you know, the, um, the, the, the cocoa bean has some antioxidant properties to it, but the caffeine is certainly not an antioxidant, and it leads to a lot of issues, et cetera. And so um, you'll see the world get enthralled with things that have benefits and risks. And what I recommend is why not just consume things that have only benefits uh, and have uh, a zero risk or at least as close to zero as we can get and, um, and go the, the more ideal route. Okay, thanks. This is uh, maybe just a comment. I know that... Um, Dr. Nedley's information on this is tremendous, and sometimes I think a story can help a little bit too. I grew up eating mostly meat and potatoes every meal. My family is, I live in a dairy farming community. My family has a dairy farm, and, uh, and, I, and I work in, as a flight paramedic and feel like I know a few things about, uh, about medicine in the body. And my husband, uh, actually we quit eating, we quit eating, basically started a plant-based diet and ran a chip program and started eating all uh, plant-based foods, eliminated dairy, and suddenly a lot of things, his sinusitis totally disappeared. Acne, I, I had acne my whole life and it totally disappeared. I struggled with uh, iron deficiency anemia. They told me I had pernicious B12, that all this stuff, and I'm thinking, I eat a lot of meat, I eat a lot of cheese, I don't know what the problem is with B12. I said, well, my mother has it, my aunts have it, my grandmother has it, everyone has it, just it's a family thing. No, it was a dietary thing, because after a year of a plant-based diet, all of that stuff totally disappeared. So. All right, thank you. Yes, is there a question there? And we'll, um, well, we still have a few minutes. Yeah, go ahead. How do you present the idea of a depression recovery program within the church to help strengthen relationships inside without offending people? 
what we normally recommend is that you don't just do it for the church. Um, although we want to encourage um, church members to go to it, and particularly church members to help lead out in it, it's normally best to focus in on the community aspect, and as we focus in on the community, we can start seeing our own cognitive distortions by learning the process, etc. There are many churches that say, hey, we have such a dysfunctional church that we need to just need to do this for ourselves before we do it for the community. Uh, but often you don't get as good a participation as if you're doing it for the community. At least you're teaming up together to do something uh, positive and in the process get some of your most problem church members to lead out um, in it. Um, and, and, went, and by leading out, have them go through the facilitator training, etc. So they'll learn all those ten cognitive distortions. They'll start recognizing in and of themselves. And in that whole process, the, um, the church uh, improves. So uh, that's the way we would recommend it primarily, and not just for the church, as helpful as that would be, just because you'll tend to get better participation doing it the other way. Okay, and I have another question. How do you get them to listen to you? Because, I mean, <laughs> I've brought a lot of things to, like, church, the church, to ideas of what to do, and because I'm just a teenager, they don't listen. So how do I get over that step? Well, you could bring a megaphone to the church board meeting. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, it is, uh, it's often what I've noticed in meetings is that often the decisions are made before the meeting actually even occurs. And so pre-work is crucial. Trying to pick off an elder or two um, by... Uh, by you know, saying that I want to talk to you about this and helping them to see some of the benefit individually and having them speak about it as well, et cetera, can be helpful. So I would encourage you to not just bring it up at the meeting, do a little pre-work and try to get as many people to see the light as possible in a meek, humble way. And uh, you'll find uh, often changes occurring in that meeting as a result. Um, I wanted to know your comments on genetically modified foods and um, negative effects or anything you'd have to say and, and how to avoid that or what we can Okay. Yeah, one of the big controversies is uh, genetically modified foods. And uh, uh, one of the things we also uh, need to realize, you know, hybrids, for instance, are, are kind of genetically modified, not as in precise a way as the genetically modified foods, et cetera. And we know hybrid foods can be beneficial. Even genetically modified foods haven't all been sh shown. In fact, um, very few of them have been shown to be harmful. What we really want to do is to avoid where we're putting rat genes into tomatoes, et cetera. And uh, I think the evidence is clear that that isn't going to be healthy in the long run, uh, even though it may not be proven uh, yet at this point in time. So uh, in general, although that's a very short answer, and we have Dr. Burnell Baldwin who's written the whole article on genetically modified foods uh, in, uh, in our midst now, he might want to refer you to the issue of Journal of Health and Healing that he wrote that in. Uh, you'll get a lot better description of it by Dr. Burnell Baldwin's um, analysis uh, of it. But just because it's genetically modified doesn't mean it's verifiably harmful. So I just wanted to mention that aspect of things because there, there are some people that think if it's a GMO you've got to avoid it at all costs 
And again, that's, um, uh, although that might be true in some sections, to make that as a blanket statement would again be majoring in minors. Mm-hmm. And you can, can you avoid that then by just getting organic or how does that? Yeah, it's best to try to, you know, just like it's best to try to avoid some of these other harmful things that may be more minor, um, I think it's best since we're not sure how the food might be genetically modified to try to um, uh, eat the organic, non-genetically modified foods. Thank you. Or grow them yourself. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we have, uh, if there's uh, any final questions, this would be the time to do it. Uh, if not, we, uh, well, now we do have a question. Go ahead. Let me cautiously ask this. Um, I've, I've tried, I guess, once um, to go vegan. And in our small community group, we have some individuals who have uh, picked up a, a vegan diet, and then you have um, your typical Adventists that are vegetarian who bring the typical dishes that may not necessarily be the most helpful for you. Where, what do you say about um, how it relates to sin? I mean, it, uh, you, you start to feel a bit uh, oppressed if, if you don't convert, you know? <laughs> I, I guess I should just leave it at that. <laughs> all right. Well, first of all, we need to make it clear that um, uh, even being a vegetarian is not a test of fellowship uh, in the Adventist church. Uh, and so uh, there are those that are going to, you know, everyone's on a different uh, stage um, in regards to their improvement in health. And uh, by entering into the church, they've entered into the, the largest room in the world, I tell them, and that is the room for improvement. Uh, and so uh, we need to work on, uh, on improving things. Uh, but, uh, but even being a, a meat eater is not a test of fellowship, and it's not a test of, you know, whether you should be on the church board or not, uh, et cetera. And, um, and also we need to recognize that even though it may appear that you've arrived once you are a vegan, there are many vegan individuals that are very unhealthy. You know, you can, you can drink alcohol and soda pops all day and be a vegan. Uh, and of course that would be an unhealthy way of doing it. In fact, there's a, a doctor in my community who's not of my faith. Um, but since I uh, practice gastroenterology, he will often write a consult. Consult Dr. Nedley. Um, cirrhosis of the liver due to vegetarian product, and he'll put exclamation point. Uh, <laughs> and of course, that vegetarian product is alcohol. Uh, and he's trying to make the point that, you know, vegetarianism isn't the answer to everything, Dr. Nedley, is it? And, of course, I don't say that it is per se, but sometimes people will misconstrue some of your words and make it appear as though that, that's the case. And so uh, we need to um, uh, also recognize, however, that the original diet that, that God provided is a, is a good diet. And we're also told that um, as we get uh, closer to the kingdom, it's going to be more dangerous to eat animal-based foods um, and that um, she says that as we uh, attempt to reach that sinless, purified state, um, uh, emphasizing going back to the original diet will be helpful in that regard. And so, uh, uh, you know, a healthier way is not a curse, it's a blessing. And, uh, and so we just need to recognize it as such. And with every blessing that the Lord has provided for us, there's always barriers uh, to achieving that blessing. 
But uh, normally, when we, um, when we don't look at the barriers, but just attempt to follow the Lord's will, uh, even further blessings and further happiness come. Um, so uh, that's kind of a, a brief answer to your question. And if you want to follow up, I'll be glad to hear you. <laughs> if you want to follow up, there's a booth, or you could have a follow-up even now if I didn't quite answer it um, in a comprehensive way. Well, thank you all very much for your participation, and I wish you all a very healthy and joyous churches. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.